Hello everyone, it's November 8th, 2022. This week we're doing a Rocket Lab rundown. They had a recent attempt at a midday recovery of their first stage. They didn't quite pull it off, but they were close. They're also making solar panels and moving into Stennis for engine testing. They're doing it all. Let's do the show and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 384 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. I'm Dennis. Welcome back, Dennis. Thanks. I hear you bring us some news of shuttle payload integration. <laughs> Maybe 10 years too late, but but I would still like to hear it. <laughs> sure. Yeah, thanks. Um, it's great to be back. It feels like forever, but um, that was such a great show uh, last week, and bringing on Mike Stewart, I thought, was a brilliant idea. So, <laughs> great yeah. job, Mike. Yeah, that's um, cool. Yeah. But yeah, I, I uh, over the weekend kind of stumbled onto a, a video that shows... Uh, how vertical payloads were integrated into shuttle. And this is something that I knew could happen, but I never had an understanding of how it does. And it's just incredible because <laughs> the, the the short of it is that there's the uh, launch tower for shuttle. You notice how much more complicated it is. It has a, a the fixed service structure, it's called, that you know has, I guess, the elevator and you know, the, the astronauts climb up and board that way. And there's also the beanie cap and all that good stuff. But then there's this other part that's the rotating service structure. And that kind of can spin around and clamp onto the back of shuttle. But there's an entire gigantic clean room on the rotating structure, which is just bonkers to me. <laughs> and so that's how they do these vertical payloads. They In some building somewhere, not the orbiter processing facility, somewhere else, they fill a canister, which is basically a kind of dummy payload bay, but it has, you know, umbilical collection connections and all that. And in the clean room, they install the payloads into this canister. Then they tip it upright and then drive it upright <laughs> all the way out to the pad, park it underneath these two giant doors on the rotating structure that are these two uh, payload bay sized doors. Like the, the, and this obviously, this part isn't really very good for radio, but like the first picture I put is showing the canister right underneath those doors. And then the second one is just showing what the doors look like with the shuttle off to the right. That canister looks familiar to me. Yeah. Cause, and so, so this canister, it's sitting below the doors uh, to the clean room. And so they, uh, at the at the pad, and then they have to go and hoist it up, <laughs> and then when they connect it, I guess uh, they 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 hoist it up. They then open the clean room doors, open the canister doors, and then using uh, uh, these uh, this this whole system that they have called the, uh, the the clean room is called the payload checkout room. And then they have what's called the payload ground handling mechanism. And it's basically a crane with like five stories where people can step on or like, you know, and access different parts of the payload bay. This crane picks up the payload out of the canister by these trunnion pins and then moves it into the clean room. They then close the doors, remove the canister, and then swing the whole service structure over to the shuttle, make a clean room connection on the shuttle itself. And then reopen the clean room doors, open the payload bay doors, and now move the payload into the shuttle's payload bay itself. And so that's how you're able to get it to stay, you know, in a clean room and powered and everything happy and healthy all the way from, you know, when you first pack it up in the canister <laughs> and then getting it in the shuttle on the pad. And, and they, so. they really gloss over this. Like you, you hear people talking yeah. about, you know, late 
uh, late payload servicing or, you know, where they're like, okay, well then right before launch, they go ahead and do this thing and that thing while it's still on the pad and like totally gloss over <laughs> all mm. of that. Like I'm, I'm pretty confident I've seen this before, but like, it's, it's almost like it didn't occur to me how much, how much rigmarole <laughs> it takes to actually do that. Wow. Yeah, that's really is. cool. It is a whole exactly. It is a whole process. <laughs> yeah, I thought I, I was. I thought it was fascinating when I when I finally found these sources and that video was very clutch. So in the news, uh, Rocket Lab rundown. Uh, I guess we're going to start with the first and uh, the biggest news item, which is their second recovery attempt of the first stage of the electron. Didn't quite work out. Mm. Yeah, they came close, but they lost, uh, I believe, uh, their GPS signal to that stage, right? And so they had to get the helicopter, you know, the little sky crane helicopter out of the way because that's the standard procedure, I guess. So I I guess just because you don't want to first stage coming back down on your prop right for sure you want to know where exactly where it is if you're flying in the uh that zone because <laughs> i mean the idea is to get pretty close to it but you wouldn't want to be that close and not know exactly where it is so mm-hmm. that's totally understandable but i mean even though the attempt uh with the helicopter wasn't successful they they still at this you know early stage have baked in their kind of sea recovery operations and so it's not like that was that was something they hoped they were would be able to do, but it's not like that is a mission failure. And even if, you know, this was a time where they really were, you know, had matured the technology and were counting on recovering it, uh, they still got their payload to orbit, which at the end of the day is the most important thing. It was actually a Swedish National Space Agency payload, and I uh, called MATS, the Mesospheric Air Glow Slash Aerosol Tomography and Spectroscopy, um, which I don't know about you guys. Did you did you hear about the payload at all and that it was a Swedish one? No, I did launch? not, no. Okay. And, and the reason I asked that is because I didn't either, and I think that the fact that it was going to be the second recovery attempt with the helicopter took all the spotlight away from what they were actually launching up there. <laughs> and so that was my sample size of three, but I'm going to stick to it. Yeah, a, fu- a fun thing is, like, is that this is designed to study gravity waves in the yeah. atmosphere. And it's always, maybe it is a pet peeve of mine, but gravity waves are not gravitational waves, like the ripples in space-time from black holes. Okay, good. Cause that's, <laughs> yeah, because that's, that's kind of what I was thinking. And I was like, how does that right. work? Right. <laughs> so yeah, gravity waves are a fluid dynamics phenomena <laughs> involving you know yeah fluids so <laughs> so next time you hear somebody say gravity waves when they're really mean gravitational waves you can try to outnerd them if you want <laughs> they're, they're they're poorly named to be sure but <laughs> it's still <different. laughs> yeah yeah they both i mean right they're both literally describing waves yeah of gravity <laughs> so <laughs> well waves in gravity and then waves caused by gravity so, did they have anything else on board this flight, Dennis? Not that I'm aware of. So, it was, it was just the the Matt's vehicle then. Did did we say the name of the mission before? Catch me if you can. Like, the answer is no. Oh, yeah. I guess we didn't. Yeah. <laughs> it's catch me if you can see me as I'm falling out of the sky. But yeah, I, so there was some more good Rocket Lab news. I mean, I guess better <laughs> Rocket Lab news is uh, they delivered some solar panels and what you typically read is that right it's their subsidiary soul arrow that they bought however many years ago and that they delivered the the panels to maxar and that they'll go on to the uh the the power propulsion element on lunar gateway which is which is cool and all 
Um, and, and they'll be, you know, putting out 70 kilowatts when they're there. But when you, you dig a little deeper, so these are roses, right? Roll out, roll out solar arrays. And I didn't realize that there's a relationship between Solero and the roses because roses are red wires, like product. Red wire makes them. And so I had to go and Google some other stuff. And so what, when they say that they're delivering the solar panels, what they really mean is that they're delivering the solar cells that are then going to be integrated by Redwire into making the, the Rosa uh, arrays, panels, and then I guess the panels together make an array. So good on them for you know, delivering this contract, which I guess they signed back in 2019, so a few years ago. And uh, but yeah, Didn't Solero sign the contract before they were acquired? I believe so. Yeah. 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 So it, it was like a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's not stolen val- valor. They paid for it. <laughs> it, it is. Yeah. It's, it's not as though rocket lab spun up from the, from scratch, a uh, solar panel business. Well, but. and I'll, I'll bet a lot of people don't realize that um, rocket lab owns solar panel technology. Oh, they've got so much, right? They, yeah. They had they really the do. crazy order of um, uh, reaction wheels, I think. Yep. Yep. In the last year or two, yeah, they're they're trying to diversify, which is which is good and cool. And they're they're they just we talked about their rock their uh, electric engines. I don't know mm-hmm. uh, a couple of months ago, six months ago. And then finally, the last thing that Rocket Lab keeps popping up in the news is uh, I I don't want to be negative, but it's almost a non-story. It's kind of just an update on something that we talked about six episodes ago, where that was big news during their investors meeting when they talked about how they were going to. Uh, lease for 10 years, uh, the A3 stand at Stennis. And they were going to test their uh, Archimedes engines, which are for the neutron. And so the idea was that the neutrons are going to be built in wallops and the engines will be tested at this stand, which was originally meant for the J2X engine, which would be, uh, which was going to be on um, part of the Constellation program. So I forget which part of Aries would have had it, but uh, but yeah, so so it was a, <laughs> a stand that was available. Actually, found some news stories that were talking about how much of a horrible boondoggle this stand was, and how it shows how endemic and bad uh, NASA is at managing money effectively. And so that was an article from 2014. But you know, at least it's getting some getting some work out now, or or it will be getting some work out. And so I think I think that I think the the quote unquote news is that. Um, they kind of made the am- announcement that they're moving into Stennis. And I, I get the sense, uh, even though they don't flat out just say it, that they now have actually started to move into the, 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 the A3 stand, I guess, and set up their Archimedes test complex. So they're starting to uh, put Rocket Lab branding on things and <laughs> get some phone line landlines set up, uh, set up some desks. I don't know. Handing <laughs> out some money to local sign makers. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it says that Peter Beck says that they're already – fast at work to get the site up and running uh, to deliver Neutron. So, cool. Very cool. And then uh, in uh, episode 378, uh, you two talked about um, the test stand being uh, being built, or the, the, the Archimedes complex being built. And I wasn't there for that episode, I don't think. I only say that because the name of the episode was Next Gen Turkey. And I remember um, missing a recording mm-hmm. and then going to... Uh, build the show notes and everything and looking at the suggested <laughs> titles and one of them was next gen turkey i'm like i have no idea what this means but i i gotta go with it it's so good uh, and then as i was like going through the show notes and i kind of 
saw what you guys were talking about, but <laughs> yeah, that was the episode where uh, Dennis noticed that each of the short and sweets had had the term next gen in it, and that's why we put the next gen and then the turkey. Oh, right, right. Was for some other reason I don't remember. The turkey but... was uh, the analogy that Peter Beck came up with for the neutron rocket, and right. even though it doesn't look good yeah. now, kind of like a, a a raw turkey that you just stuffed full of crap, but then yeah. once you bake it, it comes out of the oven. It's got the nice. You know, basting sauce a, on it, then it looks perfect. And so yeah, that's they, how neutrons had like come a together. photo of a Thanksgiving turkey, right? Yeah. Mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so let's do three short and sweets. And Dennis, what is the first? Chinese space plane releases object on orbit. The classified reusable space plane launched by China on a Long March 2F this summer has released an object into orbit. The U.S. Space Force's 18th Space Defense Squadron has tracked an object close to the space plane, and a new entry has been added to the database at spacetrack.org. The nature of the object is unknown, but it is in close proximity to the vehicle. Observers have suggested that the object is possibly a small satellite for monitoring the space plane, a testbed for deploying small sats into orbit, or a service module. Now in orbit for over three months, the vehicle is believed to be part of a two-stage fully reusable launch system with a suborbital segment capable of vertical takeoff and horizontal landing that had its second flight earlier this year. Then next up, space plane tested at Pinemunda. German company Polaris has made new progress developing their reusable space plane and hypersonic transport system. The company conducted a four-day flight campaign at Pennemunda's airport, which is unique in Germany for offering a long 2.5-kilometer runway that heads directly towards the sea and doesn't have nearby settlements. Two demonstration vehicles, Alita and Athena, both 3.5 meters long, were tested by drone pilots over 13 flights. The company said the flights were perfect, with no issues encountered, and were primarily to investigate flight stability and flight controller parameters. And finally, uh, a fire alarm scrubs the NG-18 launch. Just before the penultimate Antares 230-plus launch, Saturday the 6th, a fire alarm went off in the Mission Control Center. There was no major fire, if there was a fire at all, but the building evacuation first pushed the launch to the end of the launch window and then scrubbed it entirely. The next attempt is scheduled for the 7th of November, the day after this recording was made. This Cygnus is named SS Sally Ride, who is the first known LGBT astronaut, though she was closeted her entire life partially out of deference to straight-laced NASA, but also out of a refusal to submit to all the prejudices that come along with orientation and gender labels. And even though we, the launch isn't on the upcoming events, but the yeah. docking is. Oh, okay. Nice. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and corrections, and YouTube suggestions. Yeah. <laughs> that almost rhymes. All right. So what do we have uh, for our listeners to watch? Yeah, well, I, d- I dumped one YouTube video in here, and then uh, Dennis found two more good ones that, that I insist he talks about. So um, this is just like our little like YouTube plug segment uh, this week. Mm-hmm. Um, so mine was uh, from the, the Practical Engineering channel, which is so good. Um, most of it is... Um, like civil infrastructure and, and civil engineering. Which is also fascinating, by the way. Oh, totally. It makes it very entertaining. Mm. Yeah, totally. And it's it's funny because like a lot of things that he talks about are like, I, I'm interested in that, but I have no personal connection to it. Like um, talking about sewage design, right? Like it's cool, 
but like, I don't know, whatever. But then like every once in a while he hits something that just is like really close to me, like uh, the Oroville dam incident where the dam nearly flooded all of Oroville, California, mm. um, which was like shortly after the fire in paradise, the campfire, like it just <laughs> Northern California can't catch or Butte County, California can't catch a break, which is really saying something considering that the entire state is on fire and has been for the last couple of years. Anyway, so this video uh, is not, uh, sewers and not dams. Uh, it is uh, looking at the trip that Endeavor took from the airport to the California Science Center. Um, and it, it's one of those things where like, you know, it's a big job, but all the details get kind of glazed over just because there are so many of them. And so he talks about um, the carriages that actually wheeled the space shuttle down the streets. He talks about the time when they were too heavy to go over an overpass. He talks about the route selection a little bit. He talks about um, tearing down trees and uh, stoplights. And then also the, um, the pine trees along MLK Boulevard that they couldn't tear down because they were planted in honor of MLK. You can't, you just, you can't, you find a different route if it comes down to it. Um, And so, you know, how, how did they get, this giant space shuttle with its wings attached down MLK Boulevard and, and every other street that it went down. It's very, very interesting and well worth a watch. So there's going to be a link in the show notes. And then Dennis has got two more. One of them, I think we might've already talked about at some point on the show, but it's still really good. Yeah, for sure. I, I want to just basically mention again that the video we talked about at the top about the vertical payload integration, it's 11 and a half minutes. It's a NASA video on YouTube and it's Definitely just worth checking out if you want to see really how they they show putting the AMS payload into this canister and they show all the different steps. And that was super helpful to get to watch it as they bring it over to the uh, the payload changeout room, the clean room. Yeah. And then um, I don't know if it made it to air or <laughs> will make it to air or not, but uh, when we were talking about Rocket Lab's payload, uh, David pointed out the uh, the clamp on the, the, the mats, the, the mesospheric airglow, aerosol, tomography, and spectroscopy payload. We then started talking about the, uh, the way these clamps, different kinds, can fit to you know, uh, payload attach fittings. And I wanted to give a shout out to one of my favorite YouTube channels, Reflective Layer, who has a really, really great video on how um, a particular type of, I think it's called a light speed uh, clamp works. And so it's just very much, or a motorized light band say light speed doesn't seem <laughs> quite right yeah. for calling a clamp <laughs> but yeah motorized light band and it's just a uh it's just great like he's got the the graphics and diagrams that kind of show you exactly what happens uh, when you want to release your payload into orbit <laughs> and i feel like i've watched this video about once every six months like <laughs> it's that good it's less than two minutes so yeah it should be like a weekly routine you know every Saturday you wake up just watch this video and then go about <laughs> the rest of your day so let's move right along to this week in space flight history we have one winner who is chubby Tricosi. uh congratulations um he might have been helped by a few clues we gave because this was a last minute answer and uh, we might have given away at least not without saying it but uh clued him in on what exactly the event was but yeah we had like five other guesses and they were all incorrect so maybe so maybe my clue wasn't the best uh the clue was like icarus but in reverse most of the guesses uh were for an event that happened on the 9th of november um and that was two cosmonauts which took it along on a spacewalk from pierce which actually 
I didn't know about that. So they took an Olympic torch. I don't know how. I'm sure there's a really interesting story behind that. How you take an Olympic torch on a spacewalk? I have no idea. Sounds cool. Um, so yeah, I guess you know oh. it's Greek. There's a torch involved. You can kind of see how it might have something to do with Icarus. But uh, alas, no. The the event was actually the uncontrolled reentry of Goche. And that is how you say it. I watched three different videos to hear it pronounced. <laughs> um, Goche, which stands for uh, the Gravity Field and Steady State Ocean Circulation Explorer. And it's basically I, – I guess I should talk about the clue or I'll try to explain the clue at the top here. So, um, we know the story of Icarus, the myth of Icarus, right? And that's yeah. about I – don't, I don't know it too well, but it's about a dude with wax wings who flew too close to the sun and then he you know, fell from the sky. Uh, so this is about a spacecraft that flew too close to the Earth. So you can see how it's like Icarus, but in reverse. That was the whole, you know, at least that was the idea of the clue. But uh, yeah, so this gravity field in steady state uh, circulation explorer, this was launched aboard a Rokot from Plisitsk. And um, it was put into a 254.9 kilometer circular sun-synchronous orbit. So a perfectly circular orbit, which is important. And the mission objectives were to um, determine the geo with an accuracy of 1 to 2 centimeters uh, to determine the gravity field anomalies with an accuracy of 10 to the negative 5 meters per second. On a related thing, did you know that there's a unit for gravitation, gravity field anomalies? It's called a, a, a GAL or Galileo. And I don't th- I think it might be, uh, uh, yeah, a centimeter per second squared. So that way you don't have to carry along all the meters and seconds and yeah. prefixes. That's pretty cool. Say. One GAL. Uh, yeah. There's milli-GAL and all that good stuff. So anyway, <laughs> sorry. And uh, yeah, the final goal was to make these determinations with a spatial resolution of 100 kilometers or less. Uh, so this is why it had to be in a very low orbit, um, which I guess I didn't mention. But yeah, 254.9 kilometers, that's a pretty low orbit and it would come back pretty quickly. So how do you keep it from deorbiting? Uh, we'll talk about that. Um, but uh, first, I just want to say that this kind of reminds me of uh, the Geosat, which was another twist if that I did, I think, back in March, actually. Mm. So this was actually to study the Earth's geoid. But that was slightly different. It actually used altimetry. So it was basically determining or was trying to measure its altitude above the surface of the ocean with like high degrees of accuracy. Uh, So that was more about, you know, like very, very specific altitude. Uh, This one does not do that. It's something a little bit different. Um, But it kind of just reminded me of Geosat. And you kind of hear them both mentioned together. So I just kind of want to mention that again. I don't remember the episode. It was you know, three something. It was, uh, yeah, but I do know it was back in March because I did look it up. So if you want to listen to that, like kind of like as a companion piece to this one, you can go ahead and do that. But yeah, so the one thing about the spacecraft that everyone does remember is the look of it, the design. So it looks, I don't know how to describe it. It kind of reminds me, if anyone's watched The Expanse, it kind of reminds me of the Razorback. I know that's like, if you watch the TV show, it looks a lot like that. (laughs) It looks like a racing ship from a science fiction television show. Um, Mm So it's very cool looking. It kind of has a lengthened octagonal structure and it has these fins that kind of run down the length of the body. And it is perfectly symmetrical. um, And that is to provide a stable environment for the aerodynamics because it does sit more in the Earth's atmosphere than most satellites do. And it has to take very precise measurements. So it's, it needs to be very, very, very stable. And I thought that was interesting that they, you know, made it symmetrical. It uses a xenon ion thruster and that's to maintain the orbit. So like the other big thing that people might remember is that this is a satellite that was always under thrust and that was just to keep the orbit. This this qualifies as a VLEO or very low earth orbit. Okay. Which was in the news because DARPA, I think, just had a, uh, they are, have some project or some call for proposals or something for people to develop VLEO uh, spacecraft. 
essentially. That's right. Yeah. I think I remember hearing about that too. Yeah, yeah. The thrust levels on this thing would vary between two and four millinewtons, and that depends on the solar activity. So basically, if the Earth's atmosphere is kind of you know, like puffing up and creating a little bit more drag than usual, it could actually vary the thrust. And it had two of these ion engines. I don't know if, if there was one that was just a backup or if they kind of had to be used in combination with one another, depending on you know how much thrust they needed. Mm. Uh, very efficient engine. I think it had a specific impulse of like about 4,000 seconds. Um, it ran on xenon. So how did it measure the Earth's geoid? Um, it used something called uh, the EGG, which was the electrostatic gravity gradiometer. And that takes measurements with uh, three pairs of accelerometers along three orthogonal axes. And these are capacitive accelerometers. Now, I don't know a lot about accelerometers and how they work, but I do know what I do know what that word means. So um, I couldn't find much information like on exactly the design, but they're very very accurate again. I mean, considering that they can take measurements that are this small. So basically, the way I think about it, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that you basically have the Earth's like gravitational field that is slightly changing as you pass over the, Earth's, the surface of the Earth, and so that will affect the accelerometer ever so slightly. Now, of course, there are other things that affect the accelerometer, such as if it's not maintaining its orbit with um, the exact amount of thrust that you need to offset the drag. And so this EGG, the electrostatic gravity gradiometer, it was um, actually positioned close to the center of mass of the spacecraft, and that's just to ensure that it gets very accurate reading. So basically, the gravity, I suppose, of the spacecraft itself could actually, you know, like affect these little accelerometers, um, just to give an idea of how accurate they are. At least I think that that's what it is. It might also have to do with attitude control, um, but I think it has to do with maybe gravitational forces created by the spacecraft, although I can't imagine that that would have an effect. But when you're talking about numbers these small, I'm not sure what science is even capable of. So if you have any ideas as to why that was so important to keep it near the center of mass, let me know. Well, I mean, if it's all about accelerations, then if you're further from the, if you're away from the center of mass and the spacecraft turns at all, mm -hmm. you're going right. to accelerate. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it, it might just have to do um, more so with the spacecraft's attitude control. Colin asked in the chat, you saw that, are the measurements possible because of tidal forces within the spacecraft? And then Aaron Soddy says, yes, it's a gravity gradiometer. There are three pairs of accelerometers and they look at the difference between those readings. That's why they're paired. Uh, yeah. Yep. Sorry, I missed that. <laughs> but yeah, so these accelerometers can detect accelerations as small as 10 to the negative 12 Jesus. meters per second. Yeah, so again, like with numbers this small, I just, like my brain just switches off. I'm like, is that possible? And I, and I guess it is, but like we're talking about like very precision instruments here and mm. I wouldn't have known that that was even possible. Uh, how do you build something like that? Which is why it would be really interesting to know more about the actual accelerometers themselves. What's kind of weird is that um, these types of accelerometers are – super, super common. You have them in your cell phone. They just have very high quality ones, I'm assuming. <laughs> I mean, it can't be a spring with that level of... So I imagine... I think they, they do actually, something clever with it voltage. Is. And no, it, it is actually really? a, a spring. It's it's like almost a molecular spring. It's not, but it's it's very, very small. It's machined out of... It, it, it's part of the silicon... Uh, I mean, it's like a, a printed spring rather than a or a silk screened wow. spring rather than anything else. But yeah, it, it's um it's just a little like a like a tuning fork almost. Um and then the capacitive part is how you're measuring the position uh, of the oscillator. Uh yeah, Colin's mm -hmm. got the right the right word. Me it's a MEMS device. That's what I was trying to get to. No kidding. Um, but I mean like it it's it, it's crazy because like this technology is so widely applicable. We use them for really low resolution devices and really high resolution devices and it it's just a good tech. My guess would have been that it's 
something different because we're talking about huge differences in resolution, you know, mm-hmm. that like, oh, it has to be some, some kind of fundamentally different technology. Honestly, the, the components are so small. I wouldn't be shocked if like there were big categories, you know, you got a, a big version, and a small version, but I'll bet that when you're paying for the expensive ones, it's just the ones that came out right. And the mm-hmm. ones that didn't come out quite right, just due to random you know, mm-hmm. manufacturing differences, those ones get sold off at a lower price. Yeah. Isn't that kind of how they do a lot of things like hard drives mm-hmm. and various chips? Yeah. Yeah. Resistors, humans are actually really right? bad at making, uh, yeah. Res- yeah. Re- I think today we're pretty good on resistors. I mean, it depends on what, I what think, yeah, maybe accuracy, back in the day. but yeah, I mean like uh, there are a lot of things that we're really bad at making the first time round. So we just make a bunch of them and sell some of them at a high price and some of them at a low price. Like Mm -hmm. it works out. Yeah. So that's the accelerometers. And then it uses cold gas thrusters, which are used to calibrate the gradiometers by shaking the spacecraft. And that's the term that it used. It shakes the spacecraft. So I guess it provides, you know, like enough of a force in order for them to settle and like recalibrate themselves. At least I'm guessing that that's how they're calibrated. And then it has uh, a digital sun sensor. And this is to provide high accuracy sun vector information. So essentially, again, like the level of accuracy of the spacecraft, this is the thing that just keeps on like blowing my mind in how they took everything into account. So the sun's rays as they come down on the solar panels of the spacecraft, that needs to be taken into consideration because it provides a little, a very small amount of solar pressure and, you know, that could affect your readings. But uh, yeah, the solar panels are on the zenith side. So essentially the top of the spacecraft and then it has radiators that are underneath. Uh, That's how it radiates heat away. Um, And it uses a 12-channel GPS receiver and that's to determine the spacecraft's precise position. So this mission was expected to run for 20 months, but actually it had plenty of fuel. um, And this was just because of a pretty good solar minimum. So there wasn't a whole lot of atmosphere to contend with. So they actually extended it by 15 months. Um, and then I guess we get to the the reason for the clue, which was the actual deorbiting. So this is a pretty cool science mission that just gets better once you get close to the end of life, because the idea mm-hmm. is to keep it as close to the Earth as possible. And once it deorbits, well, that's what's going to happen. So they really wanted to keep everything else up and running, wanted to get high resolution data. They used something called ARPA, which was the Aerodynamic and Radiation Pressure Analysis. So basically, you're having to sort through the data that you're getting on your accelerometers, how much of this is due Due to the deceleration of the spacecraft and then how much of it is like actually the gravitational pull of these local areas of the Earth that you're passing over. Um, and there's a whole lot of fancy math that was done um, to determine that. And there's a lot of papers written on that. Interesting stuff. Again, the math is way beyond me, but pretty cool. And again, it just gives you an idea of uh, the lengths to which they went in order to keep this thing going just as it started to descend lower and lower in the Earth's atmosphere. And they used a CAD model of the Goche spacecraft, and that was in order to model both the Earth and the sun radiation pressure. Um, so you have like solar pressure that's coming down from space, and then you have uh, the sunlight that is reflected back from Earth, um, and I guess just, you know, like general radiation. And that had to be taken into account as well. Hmm. Um, and they used ray tracing as well. So they used a ray tracing tool. So you, so just, you know, like in order to get these, you know, what parts of the spacecraft various amounts of radiation are having an effect on. And I guess, again, that kind of explains why uh, the spacecraft was made symmetrically. So I guess that makes the math a little bit easier. That's cool. I I, I don't know about you guys. I'd never really thought about radiation pressure coming from reflected sunlight. Yeah, me neither. Reflecting off the Earth. <laughs> Apparently, it's, it's like there's enough of it to make a difference in the data that they're collecting. I mean, again, this is just numbers that are yeah. so crazy to me that I just kind of have to go, yeah, I guess. <laughs> yeah, most most people just discount it. What's really impressive is that, that there's 
their modeling is good enough that even as they're flying through the upper atmosphere, they still have to worry about radiation pressure coming up from the ground. That's the thing that kind of surprised me because if they were, you know, still in orbit, then sure. But they're, you know, right. heading, they're getting into, you know, yeah, this denser medium and all kinds of stuff's happening. And yet this is still a factor that they're keeping track of. That's just insane to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the last GPS measurements were taken at an altitude of 130 kilometers. And then uh, the GPS went dark. And then shortly after that, the next day, uh, it disintegrated on November 11th at 115 kilometers. So were they doing science up Till the point where they lost the GPS lock? I think it was, yeah, just up until they lost the GPS, wow. except for, you know, like some monitoring from the ground. They might have been uh, collecting data after that, but I don't know how useful it was because yeah. uh, the GPS component is, a you know, is like very important because you have to know the exact location of the spacecraft. So the vehicle lost its GPS lock before they lost contact with the spacecraft itself? Well, I don't know if they ever lost contact with the spacecraft. Um, well, I mean, obviously they... They did it. Certain, <laughs> they did it like, at some point. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, they lost GPS first. They probably maintained contact, but I don't know how useful any of that mm. data was in yeah, some well, certain points. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I guess at that point, they just continued to monitor it to uh, see where it might deorbit. Um, and yeah, it came down over the Falkland Islands. Uh, they continued to monitor the spacecraft for space debris to monitor the orbital decay properties just to get, you know. So they were kind of like collecting data like, up until the very last moment. So this is, to me, this is like um, a spacecraft uh, whose deorbiting was perhaps the most science rich of any deorbiting spacecraft ever, perhaps, you know, uh, because it just got better as it started to come back. Um, <laughs> it almost seems that, like that was sort of like the second half of the mission or the second last 120th of the mission or whatever, you know, uh, just those last couple of weeks um, like, as it came back. And then that's when they were able to get some very good data just because you can get better resolution the closer you get to the ground. But yeah, that is uh, the short and sweet of Goche. So maybe we'll talk about it in the future again uh, since it went unnoticed for so long. Um, <laughs> I think it'd be cool to bring it up again. But yeah, a cool looking spacecraft, if nothing else. And uh, uh, did a lot of good science and especially the last days just before its fiery death. So just to do a quick uh, self-correction burn here, I was talking about the uh, accelerometers and I'm not sure how much of that's actually going to make it into the edit. I'm hoping not too much. But the gravity gradiometer is the name for the the collection of uh, of accelerometers. So it's made up of three pairs of three axis accelerometers, and these are not MEMS devices, right? This is not. It's the same concept as the accelerometer in your phone, but it's there's actually a much different device. So, um, you know, if you think about a, a tuning fork uh, like uh, accelerometer in your phone. You're cutting out slices or you're cutting out shapes in the silicon wafer and um, you have some arms that can wobble and let let a mass wobble back and forth. And then to calibrate it, you're basically just measuring the the weight of that mass, right, to see how much of an effect um, a a force applied to the casing is going to affect the the mass on the inside. So anyway... For this, um, it, it's the same kind of concept, except instead of a little tiny bit of silicon being the proof mass, for this, it's actually, um, I'm assuming uh, metal. It, I don't see the, the material named, but these proof masses are four centimeters by four centimeters by one centimeter thick. 
Um, so these are huge, uh, like really, really gigantic things. And they are being levitated. So I'll, I'll read a quote here. Each accelerometer measured the control voltages that were required to levitate these four by four by one proof masses at the center of a slightly larger cage. Um, so it, it sounds to me like they're actually um, electromagnetically uh, levitated. I'm not sure how they are centering them. Um, it, that's probably where the capacitive um, bit comes in. They're probably looking at the capacitance that this proof mass can, you know, soak up from the uh, electromagnet or the coils that are levitating it. Um, so, like these things are are not only very sensitive, but they're a different class of accelerometer than I was initially thinking. I don't, I've never heard of anything on this. Uh, on this scale, it makes sense that it would be so dramatically different, but I don't know if there's very much else that we need a, uh, accelerometers this precise for. It's very, very cool. So mm -hmm. I'm, uh, I'm bringing all this from Colin in the chat who, uh, who linked uh, a PDF. I'll, uh, it's not a PDF, uh, uh, an article. I'll, I'll link it in the show notes. And thank you, Colin, for uh, finding this, pointing it out, and getting my attention by quoting small bits of it so, so that I would actually go and read the rest of it. So <laughs> thank you, Colin. Very, very good intel right there. All right. With that correction burn aside, thank you very much, David. This was a great look at Gosa. It's good to put- Goche. <laughs> Gose? Go uh, Goche. That's how they say Goche. it. Goche. Oh, yeah, like it's an Italian, Italian word. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, it's, it's good to put, put a meaning behind the pretty face, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, so next week is going to be the 15th to the 21st of November. Uh, Dennis, it's your turn. Do you have a clue for us? I do. Next week in 1967. Actually, I thought it'd be right about this high at Miko. Okay. Hmm. All right. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what that's uh, I, I got gases, to? but No, okay. I, I got... Oh, I I don't get well not, a not the event, but like that. the the references that that's the yeah. Steve Hawley. I thought we, he's like, gee, I thought we'd be uh, a little higher at Miko when they uh, uh, okay. they had the padaport. <laughs> um, okay, okay, all right. But this precedes that by decades, and so that's not a spoiler. Yeah. But that's just why I have this weird random sentence there. <laughs> okay, there we go. That that's what I was kind of confused about. All right. So if you have a guess as to what this clue is, um, send us your guess. Best way to do that is to tweet. Use the hashtag ThisWeekSF. Good luck, everybody. Good luck. Now let's do some upcoming spaceflight events. We got some launches and uh, another event uh, to cap it off. And so, Ben, what's the first event or All your right. first launch? Or no, the yeah. first event. <laughs> yeah, not not a launch. So the the first event is the rendezvous and capture of SS Sally Ride, the the Cygnus, the Northrop Grumman Cygnus uh, cargo vehicle. If you're listening to this now, you have missed the launch. <laughs> it was two days ago at least, um, but you might still be able to catch the rendezvous and capture. So that's uh, happening on Wednesday, November 9th. Uh, the coverage is going to begin at 3.30 a.m. Eastern time, and the capture is scheduled at approximately 5.05 a.m. Eastern time. And then next on November 10th, we have a launch, the first of four this week, and this will be an Atlas V in the 401 configuration, and it will be taking JPSS-2, the Joint Polar Satellite System number two, uh, along with uh, a couple other, um, or along with Lofted, which is the uh, inflatable heat shield. 
And so that's a really cool demonstrator and should be fun. Uh, this will be the last launch of an Atlas V from Vandenberg, Space Force Space. Mm. And so uh, also the final flight in this particular configuration. They're going to be going to the larger five uh, meter fairings when they're heaving up uh, uh, Kuiper satellites or whatever they're doing. <laughs> for, they got that big order. Yeah. But yeah. Um, so in any event, uh, inflatable heat shield is very cool. This one we talked about, I'm pretty sure, on upcoming events. And so uh, evidently was suffering some delays, but keep your fingers crossed. And again, that's November 10th uh, with an instantaneous wind uh, launch at 0925 UTC. And this, like I said, is going to be coming out of Vandenberg. After that, we have the launch of a Tianzhou Five, or the launch of Tianzhou Five. Uh, this is the fourth cargo delivery mission to the Chinese Large Modular Space Station. It's and it's launching on a Long March Seven. Uh, so I don't know what the cargo is, but I guess various supplies, maybe, um, since there are astronauts there now. Sorts of sundries and such. yeah, sundries and, <laughs> and and I guess what I mean. Their goal from this point forward, I believe, is to keep a permanent presence, right? So. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we'll be seeing cargo deliveries uh, like every so often now. But um, the launch window for this is on November 12th at uh, 0100 UTC to Saturday, November 12th at uh, 0500 UTC. So it's a pretty big window there. Uh, lifting off from the Wenchang Satellite Launch Center uh, from Wenchang, China. Can't watch it, but just know it's happening. Launch <laughs> uh, it. You can watch if it happens. Uh, very exciting. It's Artemis 1. Yay! Um, so, uh, Artemis one, uh, is currently planned to launch Monday, November 14th. Um, well, we've, we've got a window. So the, the window is on Monday, November 14th and the window runs from 0507 UTC to 0616 UTC. Um, so that is like just after midnight in Eastern time, uh, to, sucks not great <laughs> mm-hmm. uh for uh artemis fans on the east coast like but you can watch that on uh nasa tv so there, there are a bunch of uh associated events that are going to be on nasa tv um so they're doing a management team pre-launch briefing on friday at 7 p.m uh they're doing a, a countdown status briefing on saturday at 12 p.m um, and then Sunday, they're going to start uh, coverage at 2.30 p.m., November 13th, um, with the fueling. And they're going to run all the way to the launch, basically midnight on Sunday. It's it's a long day for the NASA TV crew. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then after that, they continue on a little bit. They're doing a post-launch uh, news coverage um, or news conference. Uh, that's Monday at 3 a.m., so like right after the launch, assuming it happens. Um, then they've got a TCM burn uh, Monday at 7.30 a.m. Eastern time. And then first imagery conference uh, at 8.50 a.m. on Monday. So if uh, if you don't catch the launch, I guess you can just keep NASA TV on and get Artemis coverage all day long. And then we have our fourth scheduled launch of the week, uh, another one you've heard before, and this is ABL Space Systems' RS-1 rocket. And so this will be the maiden flight for them if they, you know, when they do launch eventually. And so hopefully it will be on Monday, November 12th, with a window from 2200 UTC to 0130 UTC. And so they will be flying this out of the Pacific 
spaceport complex in Alaska. And the final event uh, is uh, something you can watch on NASA TV, and it is US Spacewalk 81, and that is to install the IROSA Solar Array. So this is the Solar Array. I think they have a couple of them that are already on station. This is, uh, I don't know which one this is, but um, this is the rollout deployable solar array that kind of runs down the center of the legacy arrays, I guess you can call them. Mm. Uh, kind of, you know, sits between the two of them. Uh, so it looks cool. I mean, I just kind of like it. It just makes the station look cool. Mm-hmm. So this is going to be deployed on the Starbird 6 truss on uh, the International Space Station. And it's uh, it's an EVA that will last around seven hours, so a nice long one. Uh, the coverage begins at 8 a.m. Eastern Time. Um, actually, no, I'm sorry. Coverage begins at 6.30, and the spacewalk itself is scheduled to begin at 8, so like an hour and a half later. Uh, and then from there, it'll be about a seven-hour spacewalk. So, yeah, check that out if you want to see a solar array rolled out slash deployed <laughs> on uh, the Starboard 6 Trust. All right. So those are your upcoming spaceflight events. All right. And with that, let's deal with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Chubby, Deathkin, Leon Running Man, BT, Colin, Chris, a.k.a. Sty Garfield, Cayman Searle, Uncle Willie, Emery, and AC Saudi for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign affiliate links and other resources for more information on this episode such as show notes and other links visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches t-shirts and hoodies you can talk about the show with other listeners on twitter and reddit we're orbital podcasts on both and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com all right so that's it we'll see you all next week on orbit until then later goodbye everybody see you.